Turn with me or listen on as I read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And this marks the beginning of what will be a prolonged study on these two verses, uh, after which time I anticipate we will uh, greatly pick up the pace. But chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 is absolutely foundational to uh, the, the doctrine of sanctification as it's taught in the New Testament, but especially as it is taught in the book of Romans. And by the time we are done, I hope you will agree with me. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect uh, will of God. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word, and we ask you as we begin to consider this foundational teaching on the doctrine of sanctification and of the Christian life that you might open it up to us with a greater fullness uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the preaching and in the hearing and in the faith that you work in our hearts, a faith of understanding and a faith of action. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Following Paul's uh, normal division, uh, we have considered and concluded the doctrinal portion of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11. And we come now to the subject of Christian living or of sanctification. We come to the subject of practice, of exhortation and application. Now, as I say, we're in the realm of application. And uh, I I say this with a degree of, of humor. Uh, and so I'm, I'm poking fun a little bit when I say this, but uh, I like I like to say this. I think it's true. Though don't don't hear me being too stern when I say this, but people always say they want application. They say, Pastor, I want more application in the preaching, but I never believe them. <laughs> because application is always dangerous. It's dangerous from the standpoint of not just ourselves and and our outlook on the Christian life, but I'm actually saying it's a very dangerous thing for the preacher to do. Application is where sin is exposed. Application is where people become convicted. It's where people become offended. It's where they get their feelings hurt. You see, no one gets their feelings hurt when I'm talking about justification by faith alone but people do get their feelings hurt when the preacher says you're living in sin and you need to repent and when you feel the force and the power of that message or we could look at it like this so long as i'm denouncing the sin of the world everyone is pleased so so long as i'm saying what uh, americans outside of this church ought to be doing we all nod our heads in agreement or so long as I am, uh, as I was just saying, expounding these great and wonderful doctrines outlined in chapters 1 through, 12, uh, through 11, everybody is uh, pleased and thrilled and full of faith and ready to worship God. There is a general and a happy agreement. But just as soon as I begin to say with the Apostle Paul, now you know these truths that thrilled you so much have got to be lived out. 
They've got to be lived. Well, then it isn't so easy and it isn't so happy. Because otherwise, your claim to believe in them and to rejoice in them is it's actually empty and it's worthless. What what the what the New Testament tells us is that if you really believe these things, if you've really experienced their power, if you're really a Christian, someone who's born again, someone who's justified by faith, then this will become the great study of your life, the Christian life, living the Christian life. And you will realize that the Christian life ought to be lived out in a very principled and detailed way. The reality is that Christianity is something that is always relevant in everything that you're doing. And it is always exposing sin on the one hand, just as it is always showing us what we need to be doing. And what we realize, the more that we see this, is that the Christian life is very difficult. It isn't easy. It's full of difficulties. It it, it involves exertion and great care. There is need of constant self-examination and repentance. Sin, my sin, needs to be called out by name. Confessed and repented of. Holiness needs to be defined in practical ways. And just as soon as you do this, people become less happy with you and your message. In other words, what's going to happen here, or at least what I think is bound to happen here, is, is what's bound to happen in uh, the life of the Apostle Paul, is I am bound to step on toes here. You're bound to say at a certain point, Pastor, I'm not sure about that. It's inevitable. You will find at times in the coming months that you are unhappy with me. And that is why I say that it is always dangerous to apply the message. And certainly that has been my experience. It has always been in the realm of application that people have been most upset with me. But let me also say that if we are afraid in any sense of doing so, then we have wasted our time completely. For, for what is the value of believing these things if they do not, the things we believe, if they do not involve and affect our lives? Paul has told us, you remember, in chapters 1 through 4, but especially 3 and 4, that the believer, the Christian believer, is someone who, like Abraham, is justified by faith alone. He's told us in chapter 6 and chapter 8 that we are new men in Christ and that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But you see, at once the question arises, what is the use of saying that? That I am justified by faith and that I am full of the Holy Spirit and that I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. What is the use of saying that? And what is the use of believing that if it doesn't lead to something practical in my life? One of the things that we Christians need to realize is that the world isn't just listening to what we say, but more uh, so than that, it's watching. It's watching the church. It's watching the Christian household, the Christian witness. It's seeing how he behaves. The world is interested to know, is there anything to Christianity? They claim it is the power of God, but I'm not sure I see it in their life. But, you know, when they do see it, and that's what Peter was talking about. When the unbeliever sees this holy priesthood of believers actually living as believers, they say, you know, there's something there to what they're saying. But you see, it's not just the unbeliever in what he thinks of Christianity. We have to examine it ourselves and ask ourselves, do I believe that there's something to it? 
I say that this is the power of God to say to save. Do I know anything about that power? Have I experienced salvation? Do I see the salvation being worked out in my life? You see, that's the most practical and really the most urgent question there is. This is where the reality and the truth of Christianity becomes apparent. One question that we might have at this point is whether the apostle has done so already. And of course, we know that he has. Uh, To use the language of uh, the old preachers, uh, this is how I would describe Romans chapters 1 through 11. He was preaching the doctrinal sections practically. He was interested in practice even as he was uh, outlining, uh, outlining the doctrines. And so, yes, there was... Lots of application, especially in chapters 6 through 8. Chapters 6 through 8 are full of application. Or you think of the middle of 11 where we spent quite a bit of time. There's a lot of exhortation there as well. Remember always that the Apostle Paul was a preacher first and foremost. Don't think of him as a theologian. Think of him as a preacher. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that the book of Acts is so helpful. We see this man in, in, in all of his activity. And what he was always concerned to do was to preach and to establish churches. And having done that, he would write letters to them. His concern was always practical. And so he could never, as a man like that, present the doctrines without there being at the same time an element of exhortation. The doctrines, let us see, are meant for the people. They're not meant for the theologians. They're meant for the people. They're meant for you. They're meant to help you. In your Christianity, in your Christian living, every page, every word of the New Testament was meant for you to help you in this way. However, we should acknowledge at the same time that the main thrust of what was being said in those chapters, chapters 1 through 11, were doctrinal. Doctrines which are practical, but doctrines nonetheless. He was teaching or setting forth the great truths of Christianity. There really is, and I'm not alone in saying this, there is no better summary of Christian truth as a system of theology in all of the Bible than Romans chapters 1 through 11. But then on the basis of those truths and that system of theology, he was then able to proceed to deal with practical instructions, that is the specifics of Christian living. Now let us see, the order is very important. You don't begin with the Christian life. You arrive at the Christian life. And you arrive at the Christian life on the basis of Christian teaching. And so the foundation is always upon the truth. We are sanctified, Jesus prays, in the truth. And that is why the first word, well, it isn't the first word. It might have been the first word. But at any rate, that is why the therefore is so important here. What therefore here means is this, on the basis of everything I've been saying, on the basis of the teaching, of the truth, of the doctrine, have you believed it? Have you taken it to heart? Well, then you must live as Christian people. You cannot stop, in other words, at the end of Romans chapter 11. You must go all the way with Paul. In other words, and this is the danger which especially confronts us as not only Christian but Reformed believers, and that is that we would be interested only in the doctrines. But Paul wasn't interested, let me say again, in making theologians of his readers. 
intellectual sorts of Christians. He wanted us all to be well-rounded Christians. Those who were well-versed in the truths, yes, but as a result of them. And they of all people, those who live in light of those truths. Well-rounded Christians. So you begin with the truth itself, always. And then on the basis of that truth, believed. You see, not just understood, but believed. You build the case for Christian living. living. In other words, what I'm saying, I could sum it all up all like this. Christian doctrines must be applied. You can never leave them hanging in the air. You can never leave them in the textbook. You can never leave them in your mind. They must seep into your heart and into your lives. And that's what the, the apostle is doing here. He's saying, and let us see, it is a matter of great and urgent importance. I beseech you, brothers. Not, well, here you, you see is the next thing. No, I beseech you. Already the Apostle Paul is in earnest. And, and didn't we see Peter uh, doing the same thing? How did he put it? Uh, let me turn there just to be sure I've got it right. He says, I beg you. I beg you. That's verse 11. Well, here, I beseech you. It's the same thing. This is a matter of utmost importance. Here is a man downright in earnest. At one moment, he is lost in wonder, love, and praise, chapter 11, the very end. But this brings him immediately down to uh, the concrete practicalities of Christian living. And so, as my first point, let us see the doctrine must be applied. And my first comment in relation to the first point is that no one can live this life but the Christian. That's what the therefore teaches us. The starting point here is the gospel. It's Christianity. It is the man who has not only believed but experienced the salvation that is described here. And he is the one and only he who is able to live this kind of life. And that is why, by the way, you can never start with the exhortation. You must always start with the truth. My second comment is that there is something obvious and inevitable to the Christian life. We already saw this in the earlier uh, portions, especially uh, in chapter 5, where Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God and we, and we rejoice and so on. What he's re- and, and we experience assurance. What he's really describing is the man, as I, I said so many times, who's justified and know it and knows it. He doesn't just know the doctrine, but he believes it, and, and it, it, it has a way of affecting everything about him. He's alive to the truth. He's living the Christian life. There's something obvious and inevitable to it. You see, just as soon as you believe the truth, just as soon as it's gotten hold of you, it, it's begun to change you. And so you're living the Christian life already. Not only is he rejoicing in hope of, of glory, Later on, Paul says he's battling sin, he's beating down his body, and so on. That, that comes from chapter, uh, chapter 8. However, and this point is absolutely crucial, we still find ourselves in many difficulties about which we are unsure. You see, on the one hand, we are set forth on this new course, course and, and so much of what we ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing is obvious to us. And yet at the same time, what we discover now is the result of being Christians, And now being yoked to other Christians is that our relationships and our life is transformed. And now we are presented with many difficulties about which 
we do not know what to do. Look at the subjects that we find in chapters 12 through 14. Subjects which concern, uh, number one, the use of Christian gifts. That's the first thing we see in verses 3 through 8. Number two, how we are to live uh, together with other Christians in the church. Verses 9 through 21. That's one of the greatest source of difficulties, by the way, in my estimation. Now that we are Christians, how are we to live with one another? And then in chapter 13, the question of society and the state comes in. Verses 1 through 11, the Christian and his relation to the state and those in authority. Verses 8 through 10, his relation to unbelievers in society, whom Paul calls his neighbor. Verses 11 through 14 deals with personal holiness while in the world. And then in chapter 14, he returns to the church and the kinds of difficulties one finds there as regards various scruples of conscience as we seek to relate and live with each other in the church as Christians. All kinds of difficulties arise because of this, Paul says. You need to be equipped to face them. And what you discover is that, well, the Christian life wasn't so easy as I thought it would be. Now I've got to get along with this new set of people, Christians. And now I have to relate in this new way to people who are outside the church. These were the problems that were facing the early church. In a sense, you could say they were prepared to listen to the doctrines. But this is where they were falling short. And this is where we all tend to fall short. And it's in the realm of ethics and Christian living. They were struggling over the things which I just listed. And as I list those things and as I think of them myself, I realize these are the very things that the church is facing today. And so I ask the question, are things really any different today? Or do we find the same issues are still troubling us? And I would say that we do. And so while I'm saying that there is a degree of inevitability to the Christian life, the Christian now as a result of being born again just knows what to do. He knows what not to do. On some level that is true. That doesn't preclude difficulties arising that we do not know how to face. The reality is this, and it should be clear from what I was just saying, but let me state it as clearly now as I can. And that is that becoming a Christian introduces a whole host of new problems into our lives. You see, in a sense, now we've become Christians, we can say, well, these old things that troubled me, troubled me no more. But now there are new difficulties that have arisen, and I don't know how to face them. And this is something that the Lord Jesus tells us repeatedly in the Gospels. He says, in essence, that this is the hard road. This is the difficult road. You can go on the broad road, the easy road. Relatively speaking, in this life, it will be far easier, though uh, it will be far harder in the end. But this is the narrow road, which is full of difficulty. It's full of trials. It's full of temptations. And you must be prepared to walk it. It isn't the easy road. It's the narrow road. And so what do you think that we need more than anything else in light of that? What we need is instruction, isn't it? We are disciples after all, and we need to be taught. And so we ask questions like this. Show me how that doctrine works itself out in life. And tell me how I'm to face this or that problem. How am I to relate now as a Christian to the civil magistrate? How am I to get along with my brother when he disagrees with me? How am I to use my gifts in the church? How is my light to be shining in the world? These are things that I know I need to be doing, but I need help. I need instruction. And that's exactly what we find here at the end of Romans. Thank God the New Testament is full of it. 
Indeed, it's one of the things that's always struck me about the New Testament itself, beginning as I did as a new believer in Matthew. And the first thing I read was the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, giving instruction to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what the Christian life looks like. And isn't that exactly what we all need? But we need something more than that, too. Desperately so, in fact. Something you realize as a Christian, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read Romans chapters 12 through 15, and you say, I think I've grasped it, but I'm still falling short. I'm still unable to live this life. And so we need something more than teaching. What we need is power. We need power to live as we should. We need power to live as Christian people. And that's why, by the way, I say only the Christian can live like this and the unbeliever can't. Why? Well, because only he has access to this power. And in reality, this is where the doctrine becomes most relevant, that which we found especially in chapters 6 through 8. The doctrine tells me this if I'm a Christian. The doctrine tells me, this is a rough summary, there's so much more you could glean from those chapters, but it tells me this at least, I'm dead to sin. And how can he who is dead to sin still live in it? Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Not only am I dead to sin, but I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, I no longer walk according to the flesh in the course of this world, but I walk according to the power and the life of the Holy Spirit. I find a new law and a new life and a new principle at work in me and over me. I am under grace. No longer under the law, but under grace, the apostle says. You see, this is more than a teaching, and I hope that you have realized this by now. This is more than a teaching about grace, but this is for everyone who is a Christian, an experience of grace. You read what the apostle is describing in chapters five, six, seven and eight, and you realize, at least in some measure, he's describing me. This is what I am like. This is my experience. And the more that you realize this about yourself, that you not only have access to power, but that that power is at work in you as a believer. That Christ is in you, Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Suddenly you realize that what he is describing as the Christian life is the kind of life that you are able to live. The gospel is the power of God to save, the apostle says. Well, did you ever think of it like this? That that power to save is available every single day of the Christian life in every temptation that you face? In every trial that confronts you, there is power to save, not just the power to save in conversion, but every single day. And it is on the basis of that power and the new life that we enjoy in Christ that each of us as Christian people are able to do and to put into practice these many exhortations. You see, the Apostle Paul is not only saying that you should do this. But he's saying that you're able to do this and understand the distinction. This is what we forget so easily about ourselves in times of sin. We feel powerless. We say, I can't overcome this and it's too great for me. And it's as though we've forgotten what's true of ourselves. That Yes, Satan is stronger than you. I concede it. And so too is sin which dwells in your flesh. But did you forget about this? That greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You've got to remember, beloved, what is true of yourself. You've got to come back to the doctrine. You've got to believe them. Thomas Watson says, enlist the power of God through prayer. That's what I'm talking about here. 
The Christian, therefore, I'm saying, is someone who has access to power. The very life of God in his soul, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so if ever you find that the exhortations are too difficult and that they seem out of reach and that either Paul or Peter is describing something about which you know little and sin is getting the best of you, you've got to come back to this. Not how do I defeat this or that sin, but even more foundationally, what's a Christian and am I a Christian? You come back to the foundation, the truth, the doctrine, and there you will see things Jesus says that will make you free. The truth will make you free. And that is the truth about a Christian. And so there's something more than simply uh, in what I'm describing, the relationship between the doctrine and the practice. It, it, in order to live the Christian life requires more than to embrace the ideas. It does require that. But it's something more altogether. This, the Apostle Paul is saying, is the life which the redemptive process described in chapter 6 through 8 produces. Now that you've been set free from sin, now that you're alive in Christ, now that you've been justified by faith, now that you're enjoying assurance, this is the kind of life you should look for. This is the new man in Christ. Don't hear me saying such a person doesn't still need teaching. He does. But he will eagerly embrace it and he will put it into practice. And that brings me to my second comment. Or my second point, and that is what the Apostle Paul is doing here in verses 1 through 2 is to provide a framework for the Christian life. Again, this is the foundational teaching on the Christian life, and then we'll come to the details in, in verses 3 uh, to uh, uh, up into uh, at least chapter 15. We've already seen the importance of the therefore. Let me come to the next phrase. By the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Here again... You notice the same structure. He calls to mind the rich, the rich teaching of the epistle. And we've seen again and again that the mercy of God is the great thing. I don't have time now to outline it for you, but you might be amazed how often he refers to the mercy of God, the rich mercy of God. That's what he's displaying to man in saving him. How rich, how abundant his mercy is. I, I would just remind you of one verse just before the doxology that he might have mercy. That's it. That's the gospel in a nutshell. God's great desire in the gospel is to have mercy on guilty sinners. And so what we discover about him, the more we contemplate these mercies, Paul calls them, is that God is a God who's rich in mercy. Who would have ever thought he could have been so rich as to give his own son for our salvation, as he says in Romans chapter 5? When we contemplate the gospel, when we contemplate our own salvation, what we are contemplating is the mercy of God. But as, as we do so, we realize, along with Paul, that we cannot speak of mercy in the singular. We must really speak of the mercies of God. Mercies not only that we enjoyed in our conversion, but mercies that we experience every day. The mercies of God. That's, that's right. That's the subject we ought to be contemplating. God, who is rich in mercy, is always merciful to me. And it is by these mercies that the apostle constrains us. He compels us. He exhorts us. He urges us to live as Christian people. But you see, as he makes this part of his appeal by the mercies of God, he's constraining us to gratitude. 
which is an important consideration of the Christian life. Remember, I'm talking about the framework here. Well, part of the framework or part of the foundation is gratitude. I beseech you by these mercies. You see, and and along with Peter, he doesn't so much command us as beseech us. And there's something to that. I beseech you. You know, in a sense, you're free to ignore him. And you're free to ignore me. It'll make a, a disaster of your life. It may make a shipwreck of your faith, but you're free to ignore this as Christian people. Oh, but I beseech you, listen. And listen on the basis of this, not on the basis of what I have to say or what the apostle has to say. Listen on this basis, on the basis of the mercies of God. Oh, I beseech you, consider these. Make them your daily study and see if you are not constrained To live like this. If you are not compelled inwardly. And so full as you become of gratitude. To live a life of service. And sacrifice. And devotion to God. In other words. If I turn the idea around. When we find we are not living as we should. We should consider who we are living for. And why. Why is it that we are not living as we should. Why is it that. We as Christian people. God, having been so merciful to us, we are still living in sin. Have you ever thought of it like that? Are we really so ungrateful as to shun his many mercies? Do we so despise them? You see, that's a powerful argument. When you're beginning to fall into sin, come back to his mercies, his many mercies to you. The way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this is to speak of motive. What's the motive for this kind of life? As Paul begins He introduces the grand reason, the grand motive for the Christian life. The grand motive is the mercies of God. And there's nothing greater than that. Another thing I could say in reference to the framework or the foundation is the connection with what is uh, being said here, the connection to the doxology at the end of chapter 11. Paul was just praising God in the most, most exalted fashion and Uh, This is where the chapter headings get us in trouble. We think, well, he's done with that. He's moving on to something else. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to uh, to, to whom... be glory forever. Amen. All right. Well, let's move on to the next subject. That's that's how we think about it. But let us see the connection between what he said there and what he says next. And there really is no way to miss the connection here. For when he presents the subject of sanctification, the element of doxology remains. So go on. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and uh, what, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the Christian life, Paul is saying, is a kind of sustained sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service to him. We are to present ourselves to him as a kind of living sacrifice, always wholly acceptable to God. In other words, when we see the connection, the language of doxology that is at the end 
of chapter 11 continues and is sustained through the beginning of chapter 12. But the way that it is sustained, well, there is a change there because at the end of chapter 11, he's praising God with his heart and with his mouth. But what the Apostle Paul goes on to say is, if you've really begun to praise God like that, you have to praise him with your life all of your days. You've got to become a kind of living sacrifice, the embodiment of worship. That is your reasonable service unto him. These two things are connected. And by the way, that's true praise. It isn't praising God here from the heart and going out living a life full of sin. Surely you understand that. And so in the third place, we look to the terms themselves. And we notice, as I mentioned earlier, uh, just as we found in 1 Peter chapter 2, the language of the Old Testament cultus or the Old Testament sacrificial system, something the apostles were fond of doing, living as they were at the, 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 the changing of the guard, so to speak, from the Old to the New Covenant. And they still very much had the language and the categories of the Old Covenant ready at hand. So Peter does this, Paul does this. The first term is present. Present your body to a living sacrifice. What does present mean? Well, you have to think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Old Testament priests, and we saw this in Leviticus, they would present or offer a spotless lamb to be sacrificed to God on the altar. And that was his reasonable service under that dispensation. Well, here the Christian is told under the more spiritual dispensation, the new covenant to present himself on the altar of praise. You see, now the sacrifice is not a dead animal. The sacrifice is myself. That is what God desires. That is what is acceptable and pleasing in his sight under the new covenant. And what am I to present on the altar of praise? I'm to present my body. Now, that's very interesting. Many have stumbled over this. Why not say present your person, present yourselves, or perhaps that's what he really means. Well, I don't think so. He means body. And we should realize from the earlier teaching, if we have that ready at hand, And still in our minds, how much in chapters 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul spoke of the body. Just as we find so often in other portions of the New Testament. Let me just read a couple from Romans uh, to give you the sense. Having outlined the new man in Christ in chapter 6 verses 1 through 11, he exhorts us in this way. Therefore, do not let sin reign where? In your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. As the apostle says in Romans chapter 7, sin is residing in where? My body. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Or in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, what's the solution? Well, this is the solution to the sin which dwells in my members. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Now, all of that is in the background. And it's clear that 
the body is desperately important in the mind of the Apostle Paul, and the body should be desperately important to the believer uh, for two reasons. One is that, as the Apostle Paul outlines, and surely by now you must have realized, that all of uh, the kinds of temptations and the lusts that you feel arise from the sinfulness of your body, the sinful flesh still yet unredeemed. You've got to deal with that, the apostle is saying. You've got to mortify it. You've got to bring the resources of the new man to bear upon the body. But the other reason this is important is because the body, as originally designed by God, and this is true of unfallen and fallen man equally, the body becomes or is the vehicle by which we express what is true of us within. Jesus says this. He says the real trouble is not the body, it's what's within the body. And what comes out is just an expression of that. Well, Paul says, and he already said this in chapters 6 through 8, if you've been renewed in the inner man, it's a terrible mistake to ignore the body. And that's a mistake, by the way, that Christians have been making from the very beginning. They've been ignoring the body. They were just a little too spiritual. But as Paul begins the consideration of the Christian life and the doctrine of sanctification, he begins with the body. Realize this, as you are living out a life of praise, that you will either use your body to sin, and don't think you won't, or don't think you can't. It's very likely, if you're not careful, there's still so much sin in the body. Go back to Romans chapter 7. You'll either use it for that, or you'll use it to glorify God. And so you see the real danger, let me state again, when we begin with the subject of the Christian life is to be overly spiritual, which is to be impractical. We're not living the Christian life in the sky. We're living it with our feet planted on this earth in these bodies. And here's the most practical teaching of all. Begin with your body and present it to God. Use all that is in you and all that you have in his service, not as a dead sacrifice on the altar offered once only, as under the old covenant, but as a living daily sacrifice of praise to him. Why? Because of his great and manifold mercies to you in saving you. And this will never work. This life of praise, this life of sacrifice will never work so long as you sin in the body. You can't say, I'm redeemed within, the body doesn't matter. And again, Christians were saying that in the first century. No, present your bodies, Paul says. That means your hands, your feet, all that is yours. Present it to him. Lay it upon the altar of praise. Live for him always. Let your life be one of constant praise. Let holiness be your concern. How, you ask, how am I to live such a life? Well, I'm going to tell you. But for now, let this be our starting point. The basis of the Christian life is seeing his mercies to me in Christ Jesus, presenting all that I am and all that I have to him. That's the starting point. And don't you see, by the way, that his mercy is meant to help you? By his many mercies, live like this. The question we need to be asking ourselves is whether we've done this. And if not, why not? If it is not your desire this morning to live for him, if you're not prepared to live as Paul is describing here as a living sacrifice of praise, if his saving mercies have not impressed upon you an all-encompassing desire to serve him, then nothing further that I say will make any impression upon you. It won't change you in the least. 
But if you see this bit of logic, if you are constrained by gratitude for his mercies to live for him, if you've tasted, as Peter says, and seen his goodness to you in saving you, well then, here's a bit of teaching for you. Something meant to help you, the practical teaching of the book of Romans. Let us study it eagerly and earnestly. Let us seek to conform our lives to its teaching. Oh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Amen. And let us come to the table.